This is Sports Jam. I'm Doug Doyle. My guest today is the author of the new book, Serving Herself, The Life and Times of Althea Gibson from Oxford University Press. Ashley Brown is assistant professor and the Alan H. Selig Chair in the History of Sport and Society at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She is an expert on sport history, women's history, and African-American history. Professor Brown, great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Doug. For most of us, we have read something about the incredible tennis star, Althea Gibson. But Serving Herself is the most comprehensive biography of Gibson set against the major historical developments of the 20th century and based on previously unpublished archival sources, news media accounts, and oral histories. Professor Brown, for many of us here in Essex County, New Jersey, Newark, East Orange, Montclair, as well as those who grew up on the streets in Harlem, like she did, the legacy of Althea Gibson is strong here. Her wonderful bronze statue was unveiled in Branchbrook Park in 2012, but your new book, based on more than a decade of research, details the trials and triumphs of the tennis champion. She was, for a time, most famous woman in the world, but now with a new perspective, and I know this is important to you, a new lens on women's athletes, social justice matters, gender, sexuality. I know you felt it was important to lay out why she felt the way she did about many of those matters. Can you give us your perspective on that? Well, again, I'm glad to be here. I'm so glad to have this opportunity to talk with uh, the New Jersey community of people. Some people, I'm sure your listeners uh, and viewers, maybe they met Althea Gibson along the way. And it had been nearly 20 years since anyone had published a book about Althea Gibson. Shortly after she died, two books were published by journalists. That was, she died in 2003. Those books came out in about 2004, 2005. And here we are. And so much more material had become available uh, since her passing. And I wanted to put to rest a few, uh, I think, myths and misunderstandings about Gibson. I wanted to give people a better understanding of Gibson herself and also the times in which she lived. And I thought doing that would perhaps help people understand her perspective on the expectation that she would be a symbol, a representative of African-Americans in her time. I also wanted to give readers a chance to learn more about the amateur tennis scene and what tennis was like before 1968 in the open era and how that particular moment pre-1968 definitely influenced what Gibson said about certain matters, what she did and how she lived her life and carried out her career. You really weaved history and sport together so well in this book. And I know those are two of your passions, obviously. So this was a labor of love, I would imagine. It was. It was. I began this project, at least in terms of thinking about it, uh, in 2011 and had it on my mind uh, for a time after that and began the research in earnest uh, in 2012, 2013. So I, I definitely devoted, and I, I use that word, I devoted, I dedicated, I didn't give up. Uh, this was something that I very much wanted to do. So I devoted more than 10 years of my life to this project. And uh, I believe those were 10 years that were very well spent. Indeed. I think one of the best quotes in your book comes from the late New York City Mayor David Dinkins. I think it puts it in perspective so well. 
He said, if she had been a half step later, meaning in her tennis career, she would have been a multimillionaire. But for many of us, we know that was not the case for Althea Gibson, and the end of her life was really a tragedy. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but especially when you think about how she paved the way for the greats of today, of course, Serena and Venus Williams, the, the, the greatest sister team ever in the sport, and most recently, Coco Golf. I mean, she really paved the way for these champions to make lots of money. It's very sad when you think about it. There's so many ball players that are we're in the same situation, but for Althea Gibson, it was especially sad, wasn't it? It was difficult for her because she was the oldest in a family that had five kids. And especially in the 1950s, she talked a little bit about how she wanted to be able to support them and, and help them. And it's just one of those ironies, right? She's one of the most famous women in the world. When she ends her career, she has a total of 11 grand slams across singles, doubles, and mixed doubles, but she doesn't have any money. And she also had a lot of pride, uh, a lot of self-belief. And it's just, uh, it does get to you when you realize that those qualities, those traits, and her, her hard work, uh, they were very rarely uh, rewarded. At least they weren't rewarded monetarily. And uh, through the 1970s, you know, she, she came back uh, to pro tennis and even when she couldn't play, she still wanted people to remember who she was and what she did. And that, in fact, she was still available with ideas and skills that she wanted to share and impart to others. I know others have mentioned about the fact that it's Arthur Ashe Stadium, you know, where we play the, the U.S. Open. And many feel that maybe it should have been Althea Gibson Stadium. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think... Uh, that decision, it speaks to a few things. First of all, I guess it comes down to what uh, the people at the time in the early and mid-90s, what they sought to honor and to recognize. At the same time, now we have to think about history and the order of things. And you mentioned the Williams sisters, Coco Goff, any number of other African-American women in tennis. But Gibson also opened a door for, for Arthur Ashe, too. And uh, he did at times acknowledge that. And I also want to acknowledge that uh, he was younger, of a different generation, and he had his own trials and tribulations, too. Uh, they shared a mentor, Dr. Robert Walter Johnson. And some of the uh, lessons and techniques that Dr. Johnson learned in supporting Althea Gibson, he applied those and adapted those in his, his mentorship, his guidance of Arthur Ashe. Um, one of the great things about recent history is that as we've learned more about people, uh, efforts have been made to recognize them. And so, of course, uh, in recent years, the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center, which, of course, is the name for the entire complex, uh, it's really wonderful that now there's the, the monument, which is what Eric Golder, the sculptor, refers to think of, of his, his artwork there, uh, the, the beautiful monument that pays tribute to Althea Gibson, and it's on the grounds. And so people can walk by, they can see it, they can see how she looked in 1950 when she made her debut there uh, at the U.S. Nationals, the first African-American to compete there. And hopefully that will inspire people to learn more about Gibson, perhaps even pick up my book, and to learn the more complete story, the full-scale story of her life. Yeah, I hope it sparks conversations to, you know, not only with people who really know tennis, but the youngsters who go by and say, hey, 
hey, mom, dad, who, who was that? You know, uh, tell me more about Althea Gibson. Miss Gibson not only plays the typical American game also, but plays it better than anyone we've seen this year. She's always on the attack, always racing round the court. Beautiful athletic figure. 15. And she covers the court with astonishing speed, smashing like, almost like a man, and placing her volleys perfectly. Well, at the moment, this looks like being rather a one-sided single like the men's one was, because Miss Gibson is leading three love in the first set. Your book, it's incredibly detailed on on her life. And I found it interesting in reading Serving Herself that Althea was really a, I think, a natural when it came to sports that, you know, just needed some guidance and some fine tuning to excel. You know, she was tall. She was fast. Her relationship with her father was certainly a complicated one, but his sternness and at times uh, abusive, like you could call it, behavior seemed to prepare Althea for the, the tough streets of Harlem, but the tough opponents that she would face whatever sport, whether it be tennis, whether it be golf, whether it be basketball. She excelled at all those sports. She was. She was an all-around athlete. And she once told an audience at the State Department headquarters in Washington, uh, this was in early 1958, she said that she thought she was a better basketball player uh, than she was a tennis player. And she mentioned that if there had been some kind of professional women's basketball circuit at that time, she really believed that she would have been a part of it. Her mother said that she thought that Althea had been playing um, sports and games and chasing all kinds of balls ever since. Uh, she was really just a, a little tyke in South Carolina. Uh, so she loved sports. Her parents appear to have encouraged her to play. And she learned a lot of toughness and tenacity through sports. And I think she brought that just to the way she lived her life. And now, before we go to Chicago, to meet the new Wimbledon champion, Althea Gibson. I'd like you to see a picture we have here. It appeared on the front page of the Daily Mirror, and I think it expressed everything about her triumph. That's Althea Gibson here in New York, being kissed by her mother, and you can see the teardrop coming down her mother's face because it represented a lot in, the, in that family history. Uh, now, we're going to Chicago, and here is Althea Gibson. Let's give her a real New York cheer, won't you? Althea Gibson. Now, champion, your racket has spoken very eloquently for you and in your behalf all over the world, now at Wimbledon. Thank I you. was wondering, I was wondering, you young champion, if you'd like to say something to the people of the country, because I think I know how you feel about them. Yes, Ed, this has been uh, a great thing for me. I would have never thought that coming from the streets of New York, playing paddle tennis, that I would be one who would have the opportunity to shake the hand of Queen Elizabeth. To me, that is a great honor. But it all started back in the play streets, Ed, where the kids coming up, trying to make something of themselves and trying to keep out of trouble. And uh, I felt that I have accomplished a great deal in that respect. Isn't it interesting, too, that she started off with paddle tennis and now 
pickleball has become like the craze for for some people. She was playing that similar sport a long time ago. And of course, you mentioned she died in 2003. But if you had the chance to sit down with her today, what would be one or two of the questions that you would have for her, knowing her history with doing interviews and being addressed by the media? And maybe it would be different speaking with Ashley Brown. Wow, that is a deep question, Doug. What would I ask Althea Gibson if I had the chance to meet her? I'd like her perspective on where we are in sports today. It's ironic that we're still talking about athletes and issues of social responsibilities and activism. And toward the end of her life, she began to open up about why she made the decisions that she made. And uh, I picked up notes of regret, perhaps, you know, and thinking about maybe the things that she didn't do or she didn't say. But at the same time, as a woman in her 50s and 60s, she was still able to stand up for herself and acknowledge, but the times didn't really allow her. You know, you know, the 50s didn't really allow her to, to speak up and to, to say more as others did. So I would want her perspective on where we are now in terms of athletes and activism and expectations of uh, being voices for a variety of matters. You know, I'd like to think that she would feel that the book is uh, a, a balanced portrait of her life. And so I think I would appreciate just a little conversation with Althea, you know, imagining that maybe she had read through all of it and maybe just to think about how it, how it felt to, to relive those moments, those experiences, the, the triumphs, but also the tragedies along the way. You even mentioned it, that most of these sports books, a lot of the times they go for the glory, right? They go for everything that has happened. But when you think about the backdrop, you know, going through the Great Migration, Jim Crow racism, integration of American sports, civil rights movement, second wave feminism. She faced so many different parts of American history. And I think you did a really nice job of laying out why she felt the way she did. Even though you didn't get a chance to speak with her, you took what she had to say from these interviews and archival footage and, and things that... Who could say, right? Who can criticize? But she was criticized by the media, even members of the Black community, for not coming out and saying, you know, I support this and that. She, you know, we talk about mental health issues. That had to be a mental strain on Althea Gibson. You're right. And in the early 1960s, she mentions this in her second memoir, uh, in the early 1960s, she really was in a, a place of crisis. And she writes in that second book about traveling for business as she did for five years. She was a public relations representative for the Ward Baking Company. And she went to different parts of the country uh, trying to stir up interest in their product known as Tip Top Bread. One of the few, very few, uh, she would say sadly few, endorsement opportunities that she had during her career. And she mentions going out, doing her public work for Ward, and then coming back to uh, the hotel in whichever city she happened to be in at that time, and basically just going to bed. And at that point in her life, she really was, uh, she was at a low point because she wasn't playing tennis anymore. She left the amateur tennis scene. She made a foray into professional tennis that did not go very well. And I should add that 
pro tennis in those days didn't look anything like the pro tennis that we have today. Uh, and she was never able to capitalize on pro tennis as it did look in the 50s and 60s because promoters were more interested in men's tennis than in women's tennis at that time. And then by the time we get to the open era and the tennis boom of the 1970s, at this point, she's in her 40s. She's not in the same physical condition that she'd been at the peak of her career. So she left tennis and then moved on to golf. Uh, but in the early 1960s, she was just really trying her hand at the game and, and dedicating herself to it. And it's really, it's admirable all the time that she spent uh, devoting herself to this new career in golf. But she was stymied a bit because she needed the corporate corporate relations job too. And so she couldn't give all of herself to golf in the way that she really wanted to. Um, she was a really passionate person. And I think she was a person who felt things very deeply. But she also learned from a very early age to hide her feelings she learned to use a phrase to dissemble. So to let people think that, you know, what she said and the things that she said in many of those press conferences, especially about race, uh, where she tended to downplay and deescalate, uh, she put up this facade in many ways about the struggles and the challenges that she had, making everyone think that everything was fine and everything was peachy keen. Uh, but it didn't take much really to start peeling back that veneer and then to see, you know, at other moments, she's more forthright. And those other moments being especially in those men, uh, memoirs. But then also when we get to the middle 1960s and she's having trouble facing discrimination in golf, where she then reverts to talking a bit more openly about the issues that she faced in tennis. Uh, and finally revealing, you know what, there were clubs that wouldn't let me use the locker rooms in tennis. And now in golf, I'm facing that same issue. Wonderful photos in serving herself and couple of them have Jackie Robinson and her and together. And when you think about Jackie Robinson, he faced very similar circumstances and had to hold things within where he was raging inside, you know, and I would imagine, I don't think it was the same for, for Althea. She handled it in, in a much different way. But when you look at those two barrier breaking athletes, what would you say, is the, the biggest similarity and the biggest difference between the two? I think the biggest difference would be uh, around the issue of support. So I think you can't tell the story of Jackie Robinson without talking about his wife, Rachel Robinson, who's still alive. She's 100 years old now and is uh, still keenly a part of uh, making sure that people are aware of who Jackie Robinson was and what his legacy is. Gibson didn't have a, a close partner in that way throughout her tennis career. She was also in an individual sport. So yes, Robinson uh, for a time was the only African-American member of the Dodgers. Uh, more were to come. And even as I say that, we know, of course, that there is diversity in terms of the perspectives of the various um, the black Dodgers uh, on issues of race and, and when to speak up and when not to. But Gibson was the only one, effectively. Uh, and just that sense of isolation and the fact that she couldn't easily uh, turn to people to talk about exactly what was going on. Unfortunately, she did have some allies. Her very close friend and doubles partner, Angela Buxton, was there for her. 
But Gibson, I would say the third difference between uh, the two would be that, you know, Gibson was very clear that Jackie Robinson throughout his sports career, probably I would say even dating back to his time at UCLA, um, he always had this idea that he would do whatever he did, not just for himself, but for the greater good of African-Americans. Gibson was such an individualist that that wasn't on her mind. Uh, the fact that she, again, was in an individual sport played a part in it. And we also have to think about the differences between their sports. Uh, African-American sports writers were especially interested in this. The fact that Gibson was playing a sport that had these connotations of wealth and whiteness. Uh, Jackie Robinson, of course, was playing baseball, which was considered, you know, sport of the everyman, something that everyone could do, uh, really without class restrictions affected. As for similarities, uh, I think the most fun similarity is the fact that both of them loved golf. And so I'm glad you pointed to the, I'm really proud of the art program in the book. I think we did a fabulous job on that. Uh, the, there's a photograph of the two of them together uh, playing golf. And, uh, it was his after sport. He definitely loved it. She was passionate about it too. And there were a couple of times uh, when they played golf together. And that's actually, I guess, a favorite thing for me to think about. These two sports legends, trailblazers, uh, relaxing, enjoying some time out in the open air. Uh, two people who probably needed some time to relax and let go. And just the idea of those two being able to do that together, uh, that's a really special thought to me. So this is the book that we are talking about, Serving Herself, The Life and Times of Althea Gibson. And I'd like the author, Professor Ashley Brown, now to read an excerpt from page 377 to give you a little flavor of what this book is about and how detailed. And also our listeners and viewers in New Jersey, pay close attention. Gibson embarked on her new job as the sports consultant for the Essex County Park Commission at the end of the year. The work was hardly glamorous and required her to limit her travels to New Jersey, but she made the most of it. Emceeing an ice show that was a fundraiser for skating clinics in Newark looked like a fall for the mighty, but she rose to the occasion, raising her commanding voice and presence to do the job. Other activities like running day camps and tennis and basketball for girls and visiting high school assemblies to talk with students were more of her speed. When the Girls' Athletic Council at Montclair High School invited Gibson to speak, she accepted and led a chat that came straight from her days as the public relations rep for Ward. She boasted plenty, describing herself as a fabulous basketball player, a good bowler, and the greatest quarterback and passer my block ever saw on a touch football team, she also implored the students to stay in school. That's Professor Ashley Brown speaking from her new book, Serving Herself, The Life and Times of Althea Gibson from Oxford University Press. Thanks for doing that, Professor Brown. Also wanted to talk about some of the things that are very controversial or misunderstood about Althea Gibson uh, when it comes to possible gender, sexuality, she was always considered a tomboy in the way she would dress. And, and even when she wore a gown for the, the Ed Sullivan show, we're going to talk about her singing career in a moment. But she never really liked to, to dress up, did she? Well, I don't know about that. I think it was something that she was pretty clear she had to learn to do. I think it's 
very easy for people to just assume that people come into the world and maybe they know, you know, what outfit to wear, and what fork to use and that kind of thing. Uh, but Gibson was very clear that she didn't learn social graces uh, on the streets of Harlem. And her parents, they did as they saw, they did the best that they possibly could by her. Uh, but her upbringing, you know, she was born to sharecroppers in South Carolina in 1927. They come to Harlem. Things are very difficult. The father works in a garage. Uh, they tried their best, but they weren't preparing her. Uh, they couldn't know the future of the life that she had ahead of her. So it's when she meets upper and middle class African Americans through tennis that she gets these lessons along the way about how her hair should look and what she should wear. And all of those shoulds, of course, were very much related to class and to ideas about uh, the proper and best ways to represent African Americans, which was just such a, um, maybe it's difficult for people to think about in the 21st century, but uh, those lessons were, they weren't frivolous in the minds of many generations of people. These were lessons that were needed as matters of survival, both for the individual, but people also thought for African Americans as as an entire community or set of communities. Uh, so it's also interesting that you should point out that maybe she didn't like, uh, you know, certain elements of maybe getting dressed. I actually see it quite differently. I link this very much to issues of pride. So Gibson competed on the Whiteman Cup tennis team in 1957. And this was a big deal. This was the premier international sporting event for women. And she made the team. She was very proud of the fact that she made the team. And she got her blazer. And all members of the Whiteman Cup team received these snazzy white blazers. And they had a crest. I believe it might have been an eagle. Uh, but they had a crest uh, on the on the left breast. And... She loved the jacket and was very proud to have it. But as you mentioned, she was very tall and she had long arms. And uh, she just very gently pointed out to her, her teammates and her captain, you know, don't you think the sleeves on this blazer are just, <laughs> just a little short for me? You know, is, is there something that we can, we can do about that? And she always tried to look her best when she had the Ward Baking Company job. Uh, traveling about, and she wore those smart skirted suits, two-piece suits that uh, women think about, women that maybe you listeners and viewers have seen uh, on those television sitcoms from the 50s and 60s, and you'd see her wearing her high heels. Um, it made quite an impression because she was already very tall, 5'10 and a half, and then to put on the heels, and she became very attentive to what, making sure her hair was coiffed. And many people thought that uh, she... Um, she had a commanding presence, right? And to see her and to listen to her, uh, she could be quite stirring and she could really make an impression on folks. Speaking of making an impression, I mentioned the Ed Sullivan show and thanks to YouTube, you can still see those performances of Althea Gibson singing on the Ed Sullivan show. When you're smiling, when you're smiling, the whole sun comes shining through 
she received praise from some. She, you know, was criticized by others. When I listen to it, she doesn't sound any worse than any other singer, you know, that, you know, when it, if you want to call her a crooner, however you want to refer to her, she wasn't that bad. I didn't think, you know, when I'm listening to her and I thought, you know, she had kind of a sultry voice and it really depends on your perspective. But I think the criticism, you know, came from those who criticize anybody who's trying to do something different. You know, they'll, they'll criticize uh, a baseball player who's trying to play jazz or something like that. But uh, what are your thoughts on her singing career that uh, she did put out an album and it did receive some some notice and others, as I mentioned, you know, kind of panned it? Well, I appreciate your point about the present day and uh, the readiness of people to come through with just something, seemingly something negative uh, to say about even the most trivial of things. It's a way in which readers might be surprised that that sort of thing exists today, but, well, it existed also during Gibson's time. Uh, in terms of her singing career, I'm impressed by how much she wanted it. She had nursed dreams of being a singer since she was a girl growing up in Harlem, and she would stand in front of a mirror in her family's apartment with sheet music, and she would sing along and imagine herself as the girl singer in the band. And she came in second at the Harlem Amateur Night uh, event one year in the 1940s, the middle 1940s, and briefly sang in the choir at her high school in Williston, North Carolina. So she always, we might think of as, you know, keeping something warm. It was That was always with her, this dream. And when she got the chance with the help of a friend in 1956 or so to make some test records, she took it. And then at the end of 1957, when a, a record executive approached her, she was ready. And she put herself out there to do it. And even along the way, when she traveled abroad for tennis, she would sometimes sing at nightclubs or she would uh, sing during balls. So she sang at the Wimbledon Bowl. No one had ever done that in 1957. Imagine someone winning the tournament and then that night singing uh, to all of the guests there who were there to celebrate her. She did that. Uh, but I think it, it speaks to her passion for whatever she wanted to do. And also the fact that she didn't care what people thought about her one way or the other. You got to love that about Althea Gibson because some of my favorite people, entertainers in the world, are the people who really they don't care what you think. They're going to do what they want to do and express themselves. So check that out on uh, on YouTube. You can check out The Ed Sullivan Show and judge for yourself how Althea sings. But as we wrap up this edition of Sports Jam, what has been the comment of a reader of Serving Herself that has impacted you the most or made you think, smile, or even get angry? Well, no one's made me angry. So <laughs> <That's good. laughs> we're, we're, <laughs> we're lucky in that respect. I have been struck by the number of people who have told me that they sense and feel the level of respect that uh, I have brought to this book and the level of respect that I uh, have for Althea Gibson, that I've done the hard work in terms of the research and the writing. Uh, people have said to me that they enjoy the writing, the narrative, the storytelling. And so the number of people who've said that um, they see the research and they also see the respect. And 
the fact that I'm opening their eyes. Uh, you know, maybe they know about sports and the integration of sports and, you know, maybe they know about civil rights in America in the 1950s. But the fact that I'm telling Althea Gibson's story within this and on top of this and putting all this together, um, the fact that Gibson comes through as, in some sense, um, this character, this person, even a friend perhaps with whom you're on a journey, and you get to go through the difficult times with her, but also the good times, you get to see her resilience, her relentlessness, her perseverance, her sense of humor, um, really the sense that the reader and Gibson are are traveling this long road together. Congratulations on the book. And I did want to uh, to mention, you may have heard the title that I gave Professor Brown when we started, and the name Selig came up, and that is indeed Bud Selig. And so there is the connection, not only from Madison, Wisconsin connection for the University of Wisconsin, but tell us about that chair that you uh, that you were given and has the uh, name of the Commissioner Emeritus of Baseball, Bud Selig. Well, we are very fortunate here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison to say that uh, Bud Selig, Commissioner Selig, is one of our own. So Commissioner Selig is a graduate of the university, and he was a history major. I'm a member of the faculty in the history department. And Commissioner Selig has been very, very generous to us. And this has meant that many years ago, he made a very generous gift to the department to set up this endowed chair in the history of sport and society. Uh, I hold it and I, I think of it as a, a great responsibility and a deep honor. It gives me the opportunity, uh, first of all, as a tremendous asset uh, in writing this book, to have that research support. But it also means that every day I get to teach students, our students, about the many things, the many aspects of sports that I love and that are meaningful to me and that have meant so much to American history and culture. Uh, so this really is an honor and a privilege to to hold the Selig chair. Last question. Would you rather be playing a sport or would you rather be teaching when you would have the choice? <laughs> well, writing this book uh, has taken me away from it, but uh, I love golf. And I uh, let's hope that I could be like Althea. Althea was a two-sport athlete. So let's hope that I could somehow work it out, that I could be a professional golfer and uh, win every every important title out there, and I could still get back in time to teach my classes. Great answer. Ashley Brown is Assistant Professor and the Alan H. Selig Chair in the History of Sport and Society at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And as we know now, she's indeed an expert on sport history, women's history, and African-American history. She's also the author of the new book, Serving Herself, The Life and Times of Althea Gibson from Oxford University Press. Great to have you on the show. Thank you. I enjoyed this tremendously. Sports Jam is a WBGO Studios production. You can hear all the past shows by going to WBGO.org slash Sports Jam or WBGO.org slash Studios. You can also find Sports Jam with Doug Doyle on the NPR list of podcasts or wherever you hear podcasts. Special thanks going out to the BBC and the Ed Sullivan Show for usage of those clips during this episode. Until our next Sports Jam session, I'll see you at the game.